You are listening to the Lakeview Podcast from Lakeview Baptist Church in Lacey Lakeview, Texas. Worship with us on Sundays at 1045 at 125 North Bermuda Avenue in Waco, Texas, or find us on the web at facebook.com slash lbc.laceylakeview. How do you go about describing the indescribable? How can you communicate something to somebody that you hardly understand yourself so that they too can share in it with you, so they can feel it. My friend Jewel Lockridge, maybe you've met her before, she leads the Baptist student ministry at TSTC. She told me recently that she has this gift where she can actually taste from memory any ingredient or dish that she's ever eaten before. Now, maybe you've got a pretty strong sense of taste too, and like a taste memory, But Jewel's is a little different. Jewel can read a recipe, she tells me, even if she has not had it before. And she can taste in her mind the ingredients and read how they go together and whatever the recipe calls for you to do with them. And she can prophetically taste the dish as she reads the recipe. She actually does this for fun, she tells me. She'll read recipes and taste them in her head quite a diet plan and when she tries them and when she actually makes them herself or somebody else makes them for her her predictive taste is usually pretty spot on now I know that sounds hard to believe that's charismatic stuff but I tested her on this not only could she could she remember pretty much any bizarre ingredient that you can think of I tried caraway seeds nutmeg saffron She could then describe the taste so well that you could actually start to taste it too as she described it. I'll have to bring her so she can do it one day instead of a sermon. (laughs) Well, in this text that Ben read for us, Matthew tries to describe the indescribable for us. He pulls out all the stops to try and communicate something to us that until you've experienced it yourself, it's almost impossible to know what it's like, even a little. He says, when the wise men finally found the Christ child, when they, after their journey, saw the star shining down on the place where he was living at the time, they were overjoyed. That's how the NIV puts it. But you'll notice, even in English, the word overjoyed just tells you they were more than joyful. doesn't exactly say what it was that they were feeling or experiencing, just that it was more than joy. Eugene Peterson in the message, as always, gets creative and says, the wise men could hardly contain themselves. But what does that really mean? The good old King James Version just takes Matthew's Greek as literally as you can take it and says, they rejoiced with exceeding great joy. That's right. Matthew actually uses the word joy twice, one after the other. They rejoiced with a great joy. Now, if that was not Matthew, but you, and you tried that, your middle school English teacher would hand you a thesaurus, wouldn't she? Using the same word twice. Matthew's language almost breaks just trying to describe this thing that's like whatever we think joy is, but so much more. 
So maybe when you hear the word joy, you remember the feeling you had as you said, I do, or when you looked into your child's eyes for the first time. Maybe you think of a certain Christmas morning or a first date. We all have real moments of joy, but the joy that's more than joy, the joy that comes from finally knowing God with us in Jesus Christ, the joy of finally finding the way and the truth and the life, or rather having been finally found by Him and drawn to Him as these wise men were, how could you describe that joy? Even those of us here today who have known that joy that's more than joy, but who still have yet to taste the fullness of that joy, when we'll see Him face to face, how can we ever really describe that joy that we have to the world or even to ourselves? Now, even, even though God's joy remains with us as Christians, Jesus told us in John 15, it seems as if even now, even though we have that joy, we're, we're still only able to live into that joy in the smallest moments of our journey. At least that's how it is for me. On this side of heaven, at least, it seems like we're always having to seek that overjoy of God's presence and love, like we can never possess it or hang on to it as if it belonged to us. If we want that joy that's more than joy, we have to seek and to ask and to knock and pray. And with Scripture, Paul several times, I looked it up this week, commands us to be joyful, to rejoice, as if joy is not just something that's going to be automatic for us as Christians. Something we're going to have to choose to live into. Something that we have to let into our lives. Well, if all that's the case with this joy that's more than joy, I'm not about to try and do more for you than Matthew does. I'm not an apostle or an evangelist. Matthew simply tells us that when the wise men found Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world, the long-awaited Messiah, they had a joy that was greater than joy. So all I can tell you is that that joy is promised to us. And that joy greater than joy is and will be ours in finding and having been found by God in Jesus Christ. I can't give you that joy. Nobody can. I can't make that joy or the source of that joy happen for you. Only God can. And praise God, we have seen, I believe, many a glimpse of that joy in the life of this church. But what I can do, and what I'll try to do with what time we have left, is tell you why or how it is that these wise men were overwhelmed with this joy that's more than joy, and then why so many others in our story today were not. And maybe how it is that such joy can find us. So first of all, let's take it backwards. Why is it that so many folks in this story miss out on this joy that's more than joy? You notice that, right? Not everybody is overjoyed at the coming of Jesus the King. We're told first that Herod, the pretend king, he's not so thrilled when he hears these wise men who've come following a star and are asking about the one born king of the Jews. The pretend king is terrified and all Jerusalem with him. Why is that? Why does Herod worry and start plotting rather than rejoice? 
I mean, Herod and his people, this is their king. Jesus has come expressly for them. Why aren't they the ones worshiping and bringing gifts to the king that's been born in their backyard? The scribes and the priests, when Herod asks them, they know perfectly well that the Christ is to be born in Bethlehem. They know, they just maybe don't care. Instead, it's the pagan foreigners who've traveled halfway across the known world to worship a king and give him their priceless gifts. What's up with everybody else? Why do they miss out on this joy that's more than joy right at their doorstep? During our trip to Europe, Brittany and I went way out of our way and tweaked our whole itinerary, thank you, Brittany, to visit a city called Basel. It's in Switzerland, right on the border of Germany and France. My favorite theologian, Karl Barth, was born and lived and died there. And so it was kind of a pilgrimage for me. We went to the place where he was born and baptized, the seminary that he taught at, uh, the churches that he went to, even the place where he and his family are buried. And the whole day, as we walked around and rode the trolleys from place to place, I was just giddy. You can ask Britt. But for everybody else around us, it was just another day. We didn't run into a single person that looked like they were on the Karl Barth tour. And in case you haven't heard of him, this is a guy who's been called the greatest theologian of the 20th century, and he was on the cover of Time magazine, for goodness sakes. It felt kind of like the way this painting by Peter Bruegel shows the, pic, the visit of the wise men. Can you see it? Not at all. Brittany's <laughs> just snoozing along. Now can you see it? All right. Peter Bruegel's The Visit of the Wise Men. Now you still have to kind of strain to see The Visit of the Wise Men in this painting that's named The Visit of the Wise Men. It should be right over there on the left of the frame in the corner. It may, it's even off the, it's even, how appropriate, it's even off the screen. Well, if you could see it, right there on the corner of this painting, you have the wise men. They're worshiping Jesus. They're overjoyed. They're bringing Him their gifts. But in the rest of the scene, as you can see, which is most of the painting, life is going on as usual. Folks are trying to keep warm. They're trying to gather firewood and cook and eat, walk the dog. All these other folks who can't see because Jesus is off the, the projector, they're too busy to be overjoyed. They can't see because they're so focused on life and what's going on with them to be overjoyed at this thing that's happening right under their noses. So I wonder if maybe our projectors are a little off kilter sometimes, huh? I wonder if we're ever so caught up in the business and busyness of life to notice that God is with us. Could it be the reason that we don't know that joy that's beyond joy is because there's hardly any room for our lives for that joy to break in, for our distracted hearts and our minds to even notice it. They're too busy to notice joy, but they're also afraid. They know all too well what God and God with us would mean for them. They understand painfully clearly what it would mean if God had come to be their king, and they don't want it. Maybe they'd want joy. 
I'm sure like us, they're just looking for stuff that's going to make them happy. It's just that the last thing they want is the holy disruption that God is going to make in their world. Because if God is here, it means we've got to give up worshiping whatever sorry substitutes we've made into God and start worshiping Him. If God and His love have come, then all our crummy substitutes for God and love, for God and love like money and power and safety and lust and pride and our addictions, they'll be shown for the sorry dead ends that they are. And as good as it is when God becomes our king and God's love finally breaks in and God is with us, it can scare, pardon me, the hell out of you, and I mean that literally. Because our little godless lives and our self-made world has to change if God is going to come into it or it's going to have to end. And fear, Scripture tells us, is the opposite of love. Love means letting go of control. Love means letting go of yourself. Love means sacrificing your world, if need be, for another world. Herod and the rest of Jerusalem are scared to death of this holy disruption that God might be making in their world. And in fear, they're not able to love. Which means they're too afraid for joy to break in. They're too busy. They're too afraid. And joy can't enter in. So why is it that the wise men aren't too busy, aren't too afraid, that they somehow can let joy enter into their lives and overtake them. Again, I can't tell you any more that I could give you this joy this morning, any more that I could make God's love and His presence possible for you. All we know is that somehow God got the attention of these pagan foreigners, outsiders to His story, and He led them across the world to find Him. Somehow they weren't afraid to let go of whatever they had known before. To let go of their safety, of their doubts, their fears, and go and worship. Somehow they weren't too busy to go off chasing after a star. To bring their finest gifts and lay them at the feet of a poor Jewish child. And joy overcame them. So all I can say to you this morning is this. Joy is here because God is here with us. In Jesus Christ, joy greater than joy has come, and it is ours. So when joy finds you, and I trust that it has and it will, it'll mean letting go and letting your life be disrupted as joy overcomes you. It'll mean letting go of yourself and of what you cling to. When joy overtakes you, you will bring all that you have and give it in joy and worship to Jesus when joy truly interrupts your life, you'll take whatever plans and control that you have and throw them out the window. You will find yourself obeying the will and word of God because, well, what else would you do if God is your joy? And where will joy find you? Joy will find you if you make space in your life for it. If you take time daily to become aware of God's presence through prayer and silence, if you pay attention and listen daily to the, to the place where God has already shown up in the Word of God, if you faithfully gather together here with God's people to worship and share in God's work, 
Not just because you're supposed to or because preacher said so, but because who wouldn't want to be overcome and live for joy? What else is worth giving it all away for? Who else, would I ask, is worth living for? So I pray this morning that joy would find you. May you obey and worship. May you truly know and live the good news of God with us. And may you become once again or for the first time overjoyed.